Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Tom here. I just want to give you a little heads up that Kevin's audio recording was a little skippy. Kind of like an old school disc man back in the day, if you remember that. So we apologize, but I don't think it's going to hurt the overall interview with Buddha because nothing can. He's awesome. And I hope you enjoy. your knives i'm kevin arnovitz and i'm tom haberstrow tom let the listeners know what we have in store today this is really cool we got the top chef 19 houston winner buddha low on the show buddha welcome 
Oh, it's so good to be here. Finally, I, I listen to you guys like every week, one of my highlights. So it feels nice to be on the show. We heard that from Sarah last week. We were yeah. like, no way, Buddha, because you're a celebrity to us. And the fact that you listen oh, really? to us every week, it feels like uh, that's very beneath you to listen to this show. I think what everyone's gotten by now is that like, I'm very into anything that I can get my information or study up on, I'm on it. So this is definitely something that's very interesting and it definitely made my season 19 is just listening to podcasts and finding out what people think about the competition. I think this is disinformation. I, I hope you <laughs> did, gleaned very little from this particular, I mean, I, I guess Tom's game theory is, is pretty useful as a statistical analyst. Yeah. Tom has some good stuff. Definitely every week. And because you already know the outcome, it's just like very interesting to like listen from the draft to, all the way to the end and like who, who who do you think the front runner is and what's going on so it's very very cool to listen to every week yeah kevin i re-listened to the draft a little bit just to re- refresh my memory on this so i'm curious buddha do you think we should go alternating picks with the draft for top chef because kevin won last year mm-hmm. which meant he gets the number one pick and then we do a snake which means i get the two and the three then it goes back to kevin for four five so Kevin goes to Robert because Robert wins the first episode mm-hmm. or the first challenge. Then I go Ashley and then I chose you with the number three pick. Yeah. I called you a prodigy and thought you're a great character on the show and said your spotted dick dessert was amazing. Didn't know what that was until you made it for, for the show. And now I'm thinking, Kevin, we might have to – you were – audibly upset when I picked Buddha because I think you wanted to take him at number three. Yeah, fully knowing that I, I probably wasn't going to get it. Buddha, how has your life changed since the world? Because I mean, there's two stages, right? There's the moment at which you know you have won Top Chef and about 45 human beings mm-hmm. know that you've won Top Chef. And then there's the secondary, in terms of popular imagination, much more prominent, right? Like the world knows you've won Top Chef. How does your life change? I mean, do you become a guy in the incoming call business? Do like investor like this is something I've always been curious about is just palpably and tangibly what happens to you as a chef when you win and the world learns of that. So, yeah, that day that we actually filmed was probably 200 days after they actually aired. So that's when the finale was actually shot. And um, it's such a weird feeling because, you know, when you win something that big, um, you're usually surrounded by loved ones and, and people that your friends and family and, and, and like, not to, not to put it down or anything, but it's like I was standing next to Sarah and Evelyn, but like, you know, they fought very hard to get to the end. And like, they're not really going to be the most energetic and happy for you because they just, you know, made it so far to, you know, um, just, just miss it by a little bit. So, um, you know, that, that was a weird feeling. And then you had the second part where you do win. And, um, that is, that is very interesting. It's it, the moment that it's clicked on. Um, yeah, it, life, life really changed. Um, like for example, I just came back from LA this morning. <laughs> I got followed by TMZ. No. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think that would happen in my career. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Did I all of a sudden just become a Kardashian? Or I, like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> this is actually really interesting, and I, and I hope you don't take this as an insult. 
But like, I'm, I'm trying to like think about being the assignment desk of TMZ. <laughs> and I mean, I guess they get wind that what? Were you out here for a Top Chef event? Top Chef organized it, but I had to do a uh, cooking segment on E Daily Pop. Okay. So yeah, that's how it happened. Yes. They get wind of this, and their first thought, someone at the TMZ assignment desk, is you got to get a body on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He might whip out an everyone bagel dish on the street <laughs> yeah. in front of Catch in West Hollywood. Yeah, right, right in LAX, you know. Just, uh, but it was it was very interesting. I wish I got a selfie of it. I don't think that would ever happen again in my life. So we'll see what happens. Was the paparazzi cordial? Like, was that interaction cordial, or were they were they kind of aggressive? Oh no, it was it was it was, it was actually really funny. It was actually from Melbourne, so I was asking him a lot of things about Australia. But he was trying to get all of his questions in as much as he can. Look, the the flight was late, so you know, going into the he followed me all the way into the car. He's like, "Do you mind if I interview?" He's like, "No, no, no, no problem." It's like we're walking and talking, and he all the way until I shut the door. He's like still filming and interviewing. Me. So it was funny. It's definitely something that I love that. Congratulations on that. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit of accomplishment, I guess. <laughs> so you're a Top Chef nerd and we're Top Chef nerds. We've we've watched it from the very beginning. We studied it. Um, I've done the analytics on it. You've done your homework on Top Chef. I'm curious, what does getting a master's in Top Chef look like for Budala? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very honored that I got my master's, but I feel like... A lot of people who watch the show have their own masters in it as well. You know, there's so many people that watch it and they go, why are you doing that? Why are you not explaining the dish? Why are you serving risotto? Like, why are you serving Tom Okra? Like all this sort of stuff that everyone already knows. Cause you, you know, you get these people that watch season one, like, you know, to 19 over and over and over again. And you start to get this like indented memory of like what worked and what didn't work. And it's, and um, yeah, it's just like I've been called, called out to be the sort of like person that studied, but then again, I, I love the show just like you guys. And so watching it is just like my pastime as well. And so, um, and, and if you haven't watched the show and you're in the competition, well, that's going to suck for you because like, that's not going to be an advantage. You know, I treat, I treat, I treated the competition just like sport. Um, if you know, no one, no one in sport or any competition is just going to rock up and not study. Like you have 19 seasons right in front of you that you can watch back to back and write down notes and, and the smallest things that you see like, Oh, well, that's the third time someone got eliminated by risotto. It's like, well, Maybe I'm not going to do that while I'm on the I'm on the show because it doesn't make sense, you know. Um, so, you know, none, none of the greats make it to the top without doing some sort of training. They 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 go in there and they train every day and and they grind and and I'm happy that that's the result that happened through throughout my study. So wait, how old are you? First of all, I'm 30. So you essentially started watching the show as a teenager. Yes, when I was in high school. Tom, this is interesting. There's now a generation of Top Chef chef testants who literally grew up with the show as children. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And then, you know, Tom and Gail and Adam and Olga like, oh, we're feeling a little bit old now that that's happening. But I think that's, I think with this new generation of people who grew up with it, I think it's going to make the Top Chef very interesting in the future. It's going to be um, high knowledge. And I hope that a lot of people take uh, what I said on board and uh, and like you study up, like that's a huge thing that you have to do. It's two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the line, but regardless of the money, it's 
it's your reputation that's more expensive. You, you know, some people go, oh, well, I make it under the shower and that's, that's all good. But like, if you don't, if you don't show up, people ain't going to come to your restaurant. And at the end of the day, we need the people at the restaurants. That's how we make a living. So you have to make sure that you show up every day. So do you have a favorite Top Chef contestant of years past? Oh, yeah. I think everyone's favorite is Melissa King. <laughs> that's my favorite. I think she's a so well-composed sort of food that, that I love to eat. And that she just kept her ground the whole time. Just such a lovable personality. That's kind of like a no-brainer. I did love the Voltagios back then, but like Melissa took over. But the Voltagio brothers, when I watched it when I was young, me and my brother were both, you know, at that teenager phase, we were always trying to compete against each other. So it was always like cool to like watch them go at it. That was really fun. So Kevin, I actually did some some analytics here. I, I didn't quite do everything on our point system, Kevin, um, but... I looked at each season of Top Chef, Buddha, how many wins you had in the season, how many top three finishes you had in the season, how many quick fires you won, and then how many times you finished in the bottom three. Okay. And I gave a point value to each. So I gave 10 points for the elimination challenge if you won that, five points for if you finished in the top three. I gave you three points for winning the quick fire, and then I, I debited two points. I, I um, knocked you down two points if you're in the bottom three. It's not perfect, but it gave me a point total for every con- every contestant that is one top chef. And Melissa King comes out in second in points per episode. I did points per episode, Kevin, because some seasons has 17 and some has 14. Right, right, right. Number one all time in points per episode. Do you want to wager a guess here on Top Chef, Buddha? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm guessing that you know, you're bringing this up because it's quite important, and I'm actually intrigued by this. But okay. I don't want to—I don't want to puff my chest or anything. But yes, please go on. No, it's not you, bro. It's not you. Not quite. Okay, it's, it's got to be Paul, right? Yeah, it's got to be Paul. Yeah, Paul is at number three actually, because uh, really P- points per episode. Yeah, points per episode. He had three. Uh, he was finished in three. Melissa King in an all-star season is at number two. And Stephanie Izard is number one oh. with a 6.1. She had a home court advantage. She was doing it in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But she had 11 episodes out of 14. She was in the top three. Wow. 11 out of 14. She was in the top three. She won six, top three, and five others. Um, and she just was incredible that season, but Paul had the most wins, nine wins in his, in his season. Uh, you finished sixth in the point system that I just okay. created. I'll take that. That is incredible. I think about all the great top chefs in this, in this, the history of this show, it goes Stephanie, Melissa, number two. I actually probably put Melissa just out all-time greats, number one, because she did that in an all-star season, season 17. She got that that well. Paul's at number three. Michael Voltaggio, Las Vegas, number six, or sorry, season six. He was finishing fourth here. Richard Blaze at number five, and then Buda Lowe right there at number six. So congratulations. You were top 10 Top Chef competitor. Wow. I'm in some good company right now. You get your took retired if you're in the top six, right? <laughs> in addition to that, you're now a target of paparazzi. You're still at Huso, right? When you go you go to work, it will be where you go? Exactly. Yeah. Huso is a very small, interesting concept. You know, I, I didn't have, I'm not an American citizen, so I don't, so finding a place to like do my own food and get a visa was very hard for me. So I have managed to find a small dining room that was like willing to do whatever I wanted to do. 
And so I was like, this is my foot into New York. So I was like, okay, I've got to do it. I've got to try it out. You know, I've only got a small amount of time. Um, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, I'll go back to Australia. And working. I imagine it's working better than ever. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming. Once we won, we like, we, there's, there's no seats that we have available until September. And that's where we closed out the, the booking. So it's pretty amazing. I'm actually, you do a YouTube thing at night, but also is it Marky does art during the day, correct? Exactly. So we, we do like a more simplified a la carte during the day. And then that's seven days a week. And then the tasting menu is only four nights a week. What's the relationship between the two restaurants? Are you strictly Huso or is it all kind of just one up? Marky's is like the retail. Marky's is a company that I'm employed by. And I did Huso just because we needed something to separate the retail from the dining experience because people, because Marky's has a, a couple other different store locations. So if they were to say, hey, um, you know, I came here for the tasting menu and it's like, we don't do that. We just sell caveat. It's like, so we had to have something separate. But Huso is a very interesting name. It's actually the scientific name for beluga sturgeon, which is something that we take a lot of pride in because we're the only people that sell beluga in the whole United States, uh, legal. We, we actually grow it. How is the war in beluga business in Russia and Ukraine? So that doesn't change anything. Most of the caviar is actually not from that area. It's actually farmed nowadays because the Caspian Sea is actually very restricted in how, how you can fish because everyone seems to be overfishing it. But our beluga comes from a Florida-based company. They've got a huge farm out in Bascom. They breed beluga sturgeon. So this year in, in Top Chef, we didn't get too much of the, the living quarters or any back at the house and hanging out. Also, you didn't get to go on this a huge trip out, you know, international trip overseas or anything. You went to Tucson. Um, some different things with this season of Top Chef. Uh, what was... What was the biggest difference between watching Top Chef on TV and the reality of Top Chef and any sort of different things that they, the different curveballs this season that as a student of Top Chef, like yourself, a scholar of Top Chef, you were not prepared for? First of all, when they said Tucson, I thought it was like a weird way that you guys would, um, you know, Americans <laughs> would say Tuscany, <laughs> believe it or not. I thought, oh, okay, great. We're going to Italy again. I didn't know what Tucson was, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, and, and I think Damar even thought it was in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't feel too bad after that. From the reality, from the competition, it's a world of difference. What we see is 42 minutes of an episode. In reality, you know, that whole episode took three days to make. And so what you're seeing is like a very condensed down part of it. I think that the show could even go for two hours. Like there's so much content that you miss out on. Like, for example, when I did the alligator, you, you know, I, there was like maybe 10 seconds of me breaking it down. It didn't really actually show the cooking process, which I think a lot of people would be very interested in because not everyone cooks with alligator. Tell us about it. Now that you have the opportunity, like we cleared the lane and now you can drive to the hoop. Go ahead. My breakdown was very thorough in my head. If you get in my head, it's a, it's a very busy place. <laughs> the Mosasaurus is a dinosaur that ate reptiles. And if it ate reptiles and we go back thousands of years, the only reptile that would be swimming in the waters with the Mosasaurus would be an alligator. So I was like, okay, that's a no-brainer. We need to get an alligator. And everyone's asking me, where did I get an alligator from? It's not from Whole Foods. Um, we actually had a list that we were allowed to use um, just because, you know, Whole Foods has some stock standard stuff. Obviously, you know, we need to make it more interesting. And if you decide to grab it, you know, it didn't affect your budget, which is great. So it, I thought I would take that to help Joe and Jay be able to buy more stuff for themselves and Whole Foods. Um, but the alligator process is that 
Um, I didn't really get the breakdown where the ribs were, which um, I just took the tail, which is like kind of like a fish anyway. And then I poached it in milk. Milk actually is as a has the lactic acid that will make uh, that will break it down and make it a little bit more tender if you poach something in milk. So I poached it in milk with a lot of aromats, but then I smoked it. And I and the whole idea behind smoking it was well, sturgeon and alligator both lived side by side together in the prehistoric times. And um, they both have this meaty, tough, fishy texture that I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I just treat it like a sturgeon? You know, everyone has smoked sturgeon and bagels. And like, so I just started going off the smoked fish like idea. So I made like a smoked alligator salad inside these dumplings, which was technically a take on smoked white fish salad. And then I made a smoked alligator soup. Bless your heart. Nothing better than white fish salad. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's delicious about it. Ashkenazi Jews have given very little, little to the culinary universe. But we have given fish salad. And, and for that, we deserve praise. Yeah, exactly. So the smoked white fish salad was a, was my idea. And then I decided to make a soup, which is a Scottish soup called Cullen Skink, which they use smoked haddock with potato and leek. So... Yeah, it sounded weird. Alligator soup with smoked alligator dumplings. And it's like, but in my head, it made a lot of sense. We always joke about the show about how they bring in a sponsor like Jurassic Park and it doesn't actually fit the show or it's it's a little contrived and a bit of a reach. But what you just described was like, a masterclass in using the prompt <laughs> that this dinosaur ate alligators. And so you're going to cook an alligator and then do it, smoke it. And the way that you think through these dishes is very impressive. Buddha. Going into the challenges, that was like my number one thing. I did write a book. I will not write a book. I wrote on the front of our book. So everything, everything gets taken away from you when you actually enter the competition. You fire on your, your laptop, everything, even your cookbooks. So you don't get anything, but you get, you do get this, black book that you're allowed to have you know i did a lot of scribbling <laughs> in there for sure i should have written like a little diary about how my day went but I, sometimes you don't want to relive it <laughs> <laughs> but the first thing that's on my book is four rules number one's a challenge we get to cook every day and we always cook great food like that's why we're on top chef that's why everyone's on top chef because you can cook really good but no one gives you these like very obscure unique challenges so that's why like, I always took that as my first priority to like make sure that why are you putting that on a plate? Because if it doesn't sink to the challenge, then there's no point in you doing that. And so I always made that a priority first. And a lot of people would say, oh, but you have to make taste first. But anyone can make something taste good. But like, how can you make it you know, a story of Bessie Coleman or you know, dinosaur challenge or something like that? And then the third is presentation. A lot of you guys can't eat. Um, while we're cooking and as a chef you know especially a top chef you want to be able to use our presentation as your way to being able to make people salivate through the through the television and and so you should you know at this level presentation is a very good thing and then if i learned anything from last season you have to complete the dish there's no point in saying i'm going to put all these components and you don't finish the dish and and that's what's going to send you home or make you not win a challenge or make you not do very well. So those are my four things. And actually I wanted to add another fifth thing after I've actually watched the whole thing was, and which I did was have fun. The more stressed that you are during the cook, the, the worse you're going to cook. Just have fun with it. You're never going to be on that show again, maybe twice if you're on All Stars, but just have fun with it. So this is interesting. The questions I had for you is like, if you coach for Top Chef 21 con contestant in a couple of years, those are 
great rules, great rules, general. Do you have, are there, are there hacks? What would you tell at five minutes with someone who said, hey, I said, hey, I'm about to go on the show. What do I need to know? Aside from just, again, these are one, wonderful generalities, but I'm wondering if there are spe- specific hacks beyond just the Zoto. Don't do anything two, way, two ways in, in that sort. You have other axioms that you think are essential. Well, in five minutes, it's going to be very hard. But <laughs> yeah, I can definitely give a one-on-one. But um, if they've got more time, they, they definitely have to watch the show. The show is going to be like, it's crucial. Like, why would you go on a show without watching it? You know, And I think Jackson had like a little bit of a problem when he did Front of House is that he don't even restaurant wars that he watched was Portland and Portland is not the prime prime example of, of restaurant wars, especially front of house. So you're doing a chess table, like that's literally like cooking for a dinner party at home. Like, um, so it's like when you're doing a full restaurant and you have servers that maybe might, that aren't the best experienced and stuff like that. So you have to study. Studying is like crucial. Um, you know, every, all the cliches that we say, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. Um, for sure. Um, make sure that you know pastry. I think I, I, I'm finding it very confusing now that, you know, in this day and age that I still avoid doing pastry. I think that a lot of those skills actually represent in what savory would do anyway. If you make like a custard, you can also make a savory custard nowadays. If you make a tart shell, you can make a savory tart shell. So there's a lot of things that go back back and forth from savory and pastry and you should actually have that skill with you all the time. Um, and that's what, that's, that's something that I showed through, through the competition. And I think that most of the competitors, you know, I, I didn't think many of them said apart from Jay, Oh, I don't do pastry or I don't, I don't bake. You know, a lot of them just, you know, the, the baker one with the, you know, the cake and the pork brine. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so many things that it can go on. For like in 15 minutes, it's it's a very it's a very small window. But uh, if anyone wants to hit up a coach, you know, I, got, <laughs> I could I could give a one on one. That's for sure. There's a lot of things that I I didn't prepare for the show. Like I said, I I studied the thing. I had a notepad and pen, and I wrote down why they got eliminated and why they won, wow. and what the challenges were. So Shota last year, you have you have a little note about Shota last year. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Don't do that. Hung Curry was his enemy right there. Like that did not do anything good for him. I think that he would have cleaned it if he didn't do <laughs> that. Hung Curry. For me, I was I thought I was very confusing that he did that. You know, everything that he did was very refined, and it just did not go well. Like if you know, fair enough, if like the whole menu was, you know, that rustic sort of. Japanese style, but it wasn't. Kevin's so excited right now. But I have been on this for like, <laughs> for like, a year. Yeah, like if I was given the ingredients that he was done, like I'm pretty sure we can do something that's a little bit more refined than you know that would have got him over the over the uh, over the line for sure. So those are the sort of things that, and that's the thing though. You, you say it's studying, but like you just I watch Portland just because I enjoy watching Top Chef. Then like I I picked up all this stuff just by watching the show. It's like well, you know. One's not completing anything. Like you got to make sure you complete it. You know, just maybe hey, Gabe's making his sixteenth mole for the season. Like maybe it's okay to repeat things. You know, it's just those sort of uh, things as well. Some cliches uh, kind of like get on my nerves a little bit. For example, maybe like fresh pasta. Um, not everything needs fresh pasta. Like my marry me pasta, I really do not like pasta mixtana with fresh pasta. I think the dry the driest style is the best way to have it. Um, but then again, like, you know, you know, no one questioned whether Nick made macaroni, like, you know, no one, no one questions like when you make 
rice noodles for, for a stir fried dish, then you make the rice noodles because you can make rice noodles. You know, you can make soba. You can. So it's like if you're going to make these rules out for like just pasta, you've got to make the rules out for everything else. But it feels like it's like, oh, you got to make pasta. Like, well, you can make rice noodles. You can make your own dumpling skin. You can make, you know. Um, so you you got to ask those questions as well with those cliches. I'm curious because you had such a dominant season. I think like five episodes in or somewhere around there, I told Kevin that I would take you over the field uh, because I just think you had mastered the top chef uh, rubric. And I was, I was wondering what was something in this season that you wish you had done over again? Like there weren't, it wasn't flawless and no, no one can have a flawless season of top chef. So what was the moment where you're like, ah, should have done better on that. I know I, I knew I screwed that up. I don't know. It sounds petty, but the biscuit challenge, I was not prepared for that. You know, even saying that I studied everything, maybe I studied a little too hard on that <laughs> because I realized that around in Houston, barbecues usually serve as Texas toast. It's not served with biscuits. So I was like, all right, we're not going to do a biscuit challenge. There's been biscuit challenges done before. So we're definitely going to do something that's not going to do with a biscuit. And then when it came to the challenge, making a biscuit without a recipe and never, never making it before, and then you've got 45 minutes. It's so specific. You know, if someone said, make a dumpling, an Italian person can make like a tortellini and call it a dumpling, right? Or like a Russian person can make it a pilmeni, which is, you know, a Russian style dumpling. But with a biscuit, it's so specific. So that was a definitely a hard, a hard one. And I'd, I'd like to give that one another crack. I've had a couple of goes of biscuits when I've walked into the show. So I'd like to see how I go with that. Come to Charlotte and I'll, I'll get you some Bojangles. You'll get some good biscuits yeah. from there. <laughs> Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Yeah, so good to be in the show. We love it. Oh. Really look forward to every week, you know? I think, I think like, out of all the podcasts, it's just, like, this is my favorite one just because I feel like you guys get a lot of detail and, like, on on, on everything. My only, my only feedback on that would be, like, I felt like for the two most important episodes, there was a guest 
I really would love to hear your breakdown on Restaurant Wars a little bit more, your take on it and the finale. Because I love your breakdowns. Oh, yeah. You guys get really detailed, you know? That's my only thing. But, like, you know, it's like, oh, damn, I think I missed out, like, a little bit more on, you know, what the judges were on, like, the finale or uh, Restaurant Wars. But everything else I love, you know. I love, like, what you know, when it's not when it's not so much of a serious challenge, when Joe Clem was in it, well, that was so much fun. Yeah. He really gave a one-on-one. It was really cool. Really, really enjoyed it. We've had Hershey on in the past, and we we always with a guest with Joe Flam. We we want to break it break up our season a little bit, have some mm-hmm. guests in there. But yeah, yeah. I hear you. We we always have that kind of in my head, trying to figure out if we should do like the full breakdown and then do an additional episode with a guest. Absolutely. So we're always always trying to workshop that. So I appreciate that feedback, Buddha. Yeah, I love your feedbacks because like it's, it's not coming from like a hospitality or someone in that. It's just like great to see what a viewer is watching it and how you perceive those two specific challenges. See, I would imagine you wouldn't be you wouldn't care what we would think. Oh, I love it. I love it. We're just a bunch of yahoos. I know what Chef thinks. I know what Sarah thinks. I know what she thinks. She, she, yeah. I love your breakdown, sir. Yeah. Buddha, I always take advantage of our conversations with the chef to get cooking advice. I'm sort of an intermediate home cook. I had access to some halibut fillets. A friend of mine runs sort of a farm tape. She procures great stuff like produce, fish, and I cannot make halibut interesting. It is a sad, fat-free fish that continually does I have a steam oven. I made sort of the traditional Chinese sauce with scallions and ginger yeah, yeah, yeah. and sweet soy sauce and a bunch of vegetable oil. I cannot love it interesting. Can we just all talk, all talk about the fact that bullshit fish? <laughs> and it's expensive. Yeah, I know. I actually don't cook with it very often, but... If there's any tip that I would give with a halibut is brining it. Okay. You have to brine it. If I brine the fish and I did two of those Cantonese style fish, you will see a significant amount of difference. One's going to be like white and like dry. And And that was mine last night. Yeah, exactly. It gets like really pale white. But like if you do a brine on it, it gets almost – I used to do the fish roast over at Love Mountain Park. And I would notice that how much the brine actually makes halibut a lot more palatable and nicer and juicy. All right. So what is my brine and brine and for how long? So you're going to be doing a 10% brine and you're going to go do maybe about 25 to 30 minutes. 10% meaning, you know, 100 grams to one liter of water, 1,000 milliliters of water. And then you will just mix that up and then you would put the fish in there and it would just like sit there for 25 minutes, pull it out and then... You can pat it dry if you want to pat pan fry it or you can steam it. Oh, this is a game changer. And you described just the yeah. absolute misery that was eating that halibut. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, do I butter poach it? Like, what is, can you make this fat? I like fatty fish. And when I cook with non-fatty, fatty fish, it's always a challenge. Fatty fish is always the way. Hey, Buddha, I want to give a shout out to Bill Batterman on Twitter. He mentioned us in this little thread and I wanted to read it to you because I found it fascinating. He said... Don't read if you haven't watched the finale yet, but Buddha Lowe reminds me of the new generation of pitchers that grew up with tech-aided pitch design, driveline, velocity training, and pitching ninja. He executes at a level that was previously impossible. His final meal was the culinary equivalent of a pitching ninja daily highlights video. He clearly studied Blaze and the Voltagios and Brooke Williamson and Kristen and Melissa and the other great top chefs, and he figured out how to replicate their, quote, 
pitch designs. The result was, in my opinion, the greatest performance in Top Chef history. He beat the game. Other chefs have probably been better, but no one has ever played Top Chef this well. It's going to be awesome if future seasons feature several Buddha-level students in the game competing against each other. This wasn't a great season, but I think it bodes well for the future of the show. So thank you, Bill Batterman. Wow, what a compliment. Do you feel like you figured out Top Chef? I feel like if I did it again, yeah, I feel like I've, I've figured out a bit of it. The thing is, right, you can figure out most part of it, right? You don't know what the challenge is always going to be at the end of the day. You don't know who the judge is or who's going to be on your team. Like Restaurant Wars, that, that, that challenge could have been a lot different by one person not being on that team. And I always think back to like if Leah actually put salt in a basket, yeah, maybe Ashley – would have not made it through and Leah or Sarah would have came through and maybe matriarch wouldn't have happened because, you know, if we had two Southern cooks and two whatever different cooks, maybe we would have done, we would have went a different path. So there's a lot of things that would have changed, but back to the, um, uh, to, to, to that hybrid of like the, the new wave of chef, I really hope that it does go through with the competition. I think that it will make it, Super exciting. I watch a lot of different um, cooking competitions as well. You know, one of them's, you know, my, my one of my cooks was on Top Chef France this year. So I watched a little bit of that. That was very exciting. Oh, cool. And literally every single person that's on the show is a Michelin star chef. But, you know, I don't like, I don't personally like that formula. I actually like the formula that we're going in. Everyone on the same level, bringing in different, um, uh, a different style into it, whether it be comfort, um, you know, Southern Asian, which is really good and not everyone's in the fine dining background, but I think that it will be super interesting if we did get that sort of, um, level of, uh, of, of knowledge and, and, um, and prepared cooks that go into the show. I think that would be super exciting to watch. And I think like, even like Stephanie, like being so early on it and just seeing like how far it's progressed. She, she, they didn't air, but like she told Padme, is like, is this the level that we're at right now? Like, this is crazy. Like, so yeah, hopefully that's, that's what it is for the future. And yeah, to do with the finale meal, that was, uh, that was, it, it also becomes strategy. Like if you think about the mind, you said, Oh, I'm going to hold back a couple of things for the finale meal. Yeah. You actually have to, you, you need to make sure that you do kind of, play the game a little bit and um, realize that, you know, if you, if you made your, like if you've done three gumbos personally yourself, like, can you, can you make another, another final one that's going to be better than the last one that you did? Cause that's what they're going to judge it towards, even though it's all not accumulative, they're still going to think that they're going to um, go, well, I, I like the other gumbo better, you know? So um, you have to have an arsenal at the, at the very end. Otherwise, you're going to burn out a lot of steam and it's not going to be as exciting. If you were, you were top chef and next season you could revise current rule or conventions, introduce, what would you do? Oh, to be honest, I couldn't really think of anything right now because I thought when I went on to the competition, it was such a well-oiled machine. It literally gave you all the tools and all the things that you need to, to make sure that you're successful. Uh, the time clock starts, you know, just as fast as you think it does. Um, you really don't have a lot of time to think. Once you go to Whole Foods and you buy your ingredients, you can't change your dish overnight. So um, I think the the, the cat what what they've, what they've got right now is very interesting. I, I 
even even though I've watched it so many times, I they've they've performed it so so well uh, over the last you know nineteen seasons that they've really they've really thought of every single corner. Like you know, you think you see that I serve first all the time, but like that was only because you know my name gets pulled out of a, a bag. And he goes, okay, you have to serve first. I was like, okay. So it's, it gets to that fairness where like every, you know, things that didn't seem fair, well, we pulled it out of the bag and, you know, and it's like a coin toss, you know, at the start of the game. It's like, uh, that's like what was like, what was restaurant was we, we served first, like a coin toss. Um, and then, and, and then I, I do hear a little bit of that theory of like, oh, if you serve first, it's better. Like, yes, I know. Like there's a very hard, um, thing because like when we served on restaurant wards, we were a little bit behind because we couldn't find our group, and that's why they're like, "Oh, the food's coming out quite late." But like by the time you get to the judges, if you do the second wave, you should be a little bit more well rehearsed by the time the judges get there. So with Matriarch, it was you, Ashley, and Damar and Nick. Yeah, that was a great team. It was so much fun. That was probably my favorite episode to do. Why was it? I mean, you probably had high expectations for Restaurant Wars. Well, that's the thing. Yes, you can study on Restaurant Wars, but you can never study who's going to be on your team. So it becomes the ultimate game of social interaction, teamwork, and utilizing every single skill that you've ever done in your whole career. Um, And and there's a lot of things that I I love enjoy doing, and Front of House is one of them, and I love you know, that style of service, I study it. Like when I go to, when I go to like dining experiences, I'm sitting down and I'm looking at the servants and I'm seeing how they approach tables and stuff like that. And that's how I was able to do my service and restaurant rewards. Cause I'm like, Oh, I like that. I'm going to approach them that way. I'm going to pull out the scene. I'm going to welcome them. I'm going to, you know, throw out a little joke, break the ice a little bit. You know, I enjoy that sort of experience. So like, how am I going to be able to do it for the judges? And, and and not only the judges, you know, that was for every table as well. Um, I made sure, but you know, at the end of the day, you do need to treat them better because they are ultimately going to be deciding whether or not you're going to progress for $250,000 in the title top chef. So that's a, not every customer that you get in your dining room, in your restaurant going to be having that sort of power. Okay. What is your favorite crappiest food? Oh, Popeyes. <laughs> yeah. yeah good, good choice. We don't have that in, in Australia. I wish we do because it's close to perfection. <laughs> Follow up in your restaurant experience working craziest customer service experience you've ever had. Well, I've worked in like a lot of restaurants. I've seen some pretty grim stuff happen in services. So it's going to be very hard to like find out. Oh, one was super bad. This guy like, I don't know. I didn't think it's right for the podcast. <laughs> Wait, is it not like family friendly? Like it's obscene? Yeah, it's pretty grim. It's pretty indented in my head. Like this guy, like he injured himself and it was not good. Oh no. In terms of restaurant services, it was pretty dark. So I, I don't think I'm going to get into that one. Look, I've worked in like a lot of places and some interesting stuff that's definitely I've seen. And and I like to bring, bring up something, you know, we always talk about like what Top Chef used to be and it's changed. It's definitely changed. I noticed that. I, I watched the show. You know, you can see like a timeline. It's changed for good. And I think that if we always talk about back in the day and what happened back 10, 20 years ago, if we look back 20 years ago, 
the shit that we're doing was bad. <laughs> it was so bad. Like the things that people were getting away with, like the restaurant industry is always the last sort of industry that actually ends up changing for that better good. Like there's a lot of things that needs to be fixed, like equality and wage and, you know, um, and, and just like the kitchen, um, environments and stuff like that. So I think that the top chef is going a very, really, uh, is a very nice direction where it's heading. That's good. We've been, we've been kind of slapped on the wrist by you and, and Sarah about that take that we had this season. Oh, hundred percent. You know, I, I do listen to it and I go, you know, I get it. I love, you know, <laughs> I love that old top chef as well. You know, I hundred percent. That's something that's very interesting for me as well. Was there any conflict this year? It felt like there was very little conflict this year amongst the chefs. I would say there was close to zero conflict. What you saw is what, like, even if they dragged it out, I know that Jay mentioned that she didn't get on with me because of the dinosaur challenge, which is fine. Like not, not everyone's supposed to get on with each other, but like it's a social experiment as well. where Everyone's got different backgrounds and different things to, um, and different ways to work. So no, but the, instead of in, in, in light of that, no, there's no conflict. And I feel like a lot of the chefs avoid the conflict because at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're people that, that need these sort of customers and, and, and you need to be likable because I feel like if, even if you, as good as a chef as you are, if you have like a very, you know, not a likable background where, you know, it's like, oh, that person was just cruel. Like, why would I go eat there? Then you're going to lose business. And essentially this is our profession. And if we can't make money on our profession, then we're not going to, we're not going to survive. So you really got to think about your personal branding in this industry. I'm going to just briefly push back against the pushback. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think the show over time has been better produced. It continues to improve the quality of the production. I think the quality of the challenges, everything else. My commentary was more on the dynamic of having chefs kind of look at the camera and just at least convey the sense that the difference between winning and not winning was enormous. I mean, you would think mm-hmm. that when Kevin Gillespie, the first time he was on, he's like, I have to win. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. There was, it was like this chase that it was this glory. And that if, you know, God forbid you didn't get to the finale, you would have to go back to an obscure life wherever you came from, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, obviously, but it was that thing. It was more the stakes. It's not so much. I don't need mm-hmm. a heel or a villain necessarily. I don't need, I don't need people carping at each other in the kitchen. And I appreciated Sarah's mm-hmm. explanation that look, it's a, look, everyone, you know, this is a industry in crisis. And the idea that you would be waging petty, being petty wars in a kitchen during the current moment you know, is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I agree mm-hmm. with that. My, my pushback has been, and I don't think, actually, I do think the show's far better than it was, better than it was back in the day. The one component I do most is I feel like the stakes, like that people just, they really, mm-hmm. you actually were probably the most competitive cont- contestant the, the contest this year, at least this year, at least that was my, it's like, you wanted to mm-hmm. win. And that, that's all. It's just the sense that, yeah. Hey, it, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, hide, you know, hide the sugar from in the kitchen, kitchen or, or <laughs> turn off their gas. Yeah, exactly. All the PPI. Yeah. Like <laughs> uh, just, it was more just, there are time, seasons. And I think before this, before the social media explode, wow, the tween winning and not winning was really, really wide. And that's it. I actually think, actually think the show's, today than it was in the first few in the first few seasons yeah i could i could totally agree that's sort of fire i think everyone goes in there with the intention of winning if you don't then i like what well, i don't know why you would want to be on there um 
but yeah, it's just that I, I could agree like that, that fire could be ignited a little bit more hotter. And, um, but in terms of, uh, conflict and, and stuff like that, I just think that I don't think we're going to see that as much anymore. It's going to be, it's changed. Like, I feel like a lot of the, uh, chefs that did provide that conflict, um, would probably look back at it and regret it because now they've got social media and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, they were all chefs. It's like, it's not like it's a different show, like Bachelorette or, you know, or Bachelor or, um, you know, Survivor where like, yeah, if you're an asshole on that thing, nobody cares because no one's like, you don't have a business that you represent. Um, Whereas chefs do, they have, they have, they bring that business with them. So that's a, that's a, that's a profile, but I, I get where you're coming from with the, uh, with the, with the fire of like, this is that Kevin Gillespie fire. Buddha, you have added to your Instagram bio that you are the season 19 winner with a rocket yes. emoji <laughs> and a trophy. How good did that feel? And how do people find your stuff uh, that you're putting out there? Are you going to be doing more videos on Instagram or doing partaking in a lot of the social media boom among chefs? Yeah. So there's so many different things that you get to do after winning top chef that, that like next week I'm going to Aspen, which is going to be absolutely insane. I kind of cannot wait to do that. Um, something that you keep listening on in the competition or watching the show. It's like, what does that entitle? So I get to see what, see what it's all about. I still cannot believe it, to be honest. I, I don't feel like I've changed yet, but yeah, it, it does feel like you do become more of a, a person that you need to, there's a certain profile that you need to represent after winning the show for sure. And I'm, I'm ready to bring it. I'm like, there's a lot of ideas that I still have in my head and there's a lot of things that I've done that didn't really go recognized in my, in my career. So, um, I, I can't wait to show you hints and tips and how to, how to do things and, and how to cook. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very open and how like I share things. There's a lot of people that DM me for the marry me pasta. I was very, uh, you know, it was very easy to just share it because like cooking. So it's, it's something that that's how I learn from the sharing of the knowledge and we can only get better through our cooking generations if we keep sharing how to cook. And I'm always a person that really wants to make sure that everyone learns how to cook because I think it's so important. You got to eat three times a day. So sometimes six, seven, yeah, sometimes six times a day. <laughs> so you got to learn how to at least cook some of them. I think it's very important. I really had more time. I like didn't even get to talk about my, food experience in Yarra Valley with you okay. or my amazing week in Melbourne a couple of years ago, right before COVID. But we will do that for a future. Uh, promise us you will come on to be our guest analyst for like next season's Restaurant Wars. All right, we can do that. This would be fun. Yeah, I'd love to. Tom, this was fantastic. And, and Buddha, thank you for showing up after your red-eye flight home from escaping the paparazzi of Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. For Tom Haberstra, for Buddha Lowe, this is Kevin Arnott, and this is Pack Your Knives. <laughs> <laughs>